0: Hello and welcome to the 13th series of the DNV Talks Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Matthias Steck. During this series, we'll be exploring some of the key insights from DNV's energy transition outlook, our annual independent model of the world's energy system, and what they mean for the future of our planet. Across the series, with the help of leading industry guests, we'll shed light on what's happening right now and the forecast as we move forwards will explore topics from the geopolitical developments affecting the energy transition to what's needed from technology, finance and policy in delivering net zero. Crucially, we ask, how do we move from ambition to urgent action over climate change? I'm delighted to be joined by Jay Tang, Practice Manager for the Energy and Extractive Global Practice at the World Bank. Today, we'll be looking at examples of where ambitions have been turned into action, discussing real-world examples from the energy projects supported by the World Bank and why these projects are so important in driving the energy transition forward. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the DNV Talks Energy Podcast, Jay. It's a pleasure having you with us here today.
1: Hi, Matthias. Thank you very much for your invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: Jay, for the benefit of our listeners, before we start, could you give us some background about yourself and your role at the World Bank?
1: Okay, thank you. My name is Jay Tan, and I joined the World Bank in 2001, about 21 years ago. Before joining the bank, I've worked about 15 years in the Chinese government on hydropower development, particularly the Three Gorge Stem. Maybe you have heard, right? I've worked 15 years on the Three Gorge Stem in China. After joining the World Bank, I've been working on the energy program of the World Bank, and currently I'm the practice manager for energy and the extractive global practice of the World Bank, covering the East Asia and Pacific country. Basically, I'm covering the World Bank energy business in 26 East Asia and Pacific Islands countries. And I'm based here in Singapore.
0: So Jay, I want to come back to this great experience you shared working at the Three Gorges Dam and the importance of hydropower for the energy transition. But before we go there, in your opinion, why are renewable energy projects in low-income regions, regions the World Bank predominantly focuses on, so important in enabling us to drive forward the energy transition?
1: Yes, you see, particularly in low income countries, right? Their energy is pretty much depending on a lot of imports of fossil fuels to support the energy demand. This is the case in low income countries in East Asia, particularly in the Pacific Island country. You know, all the power generation as well as transport energy depending on fossil fuel import. Scale up renewable energy is really a good solution where those countries can go to their indigenous resources available within their country and given the development in the international market, right? The price is much more affordable. So from both energy security perspective and supply and demand balance as well as cost management and logistics management. Renewable energy plays a critical role for energy transition and also for the sustainable growth of their economy and social lives in those low-income countries.
0: What about the available financing to drive innovation in renewables for these countries? Is there enough or do we need improvement there?
1: Financing is a huge challenge. So I would go a little bit beyond the low-income planet and talk about the East Asia country. Basically, you see, if you talk about climate change, right, about 56% of the CO2 greenhouse gas emissions coming from Asian countries. And then for coal consumption, around 71% of the world coal consumption is happening in Asian countries, particularly in six major countries, China, India, Vietnam, Philippines, Indonesia, and Pakistan. This six country consumes 71 percent of the world coal consumption. So when you come to energy transition, first all these countries have their national determined commitment, right, to the climate change. Even to allow them to achieve those uh, NDC targets, our estimation shows that around nine trillion dollars will be needed in the next 20 years, just for these six country. Then, if you take other country in Asia, right, so there is a huge financial risk, and the, to be Paris Agreement aligned, right those countries even need to step up their commitment the renewable energy and the energy efficiency than what they have committed for the NDC to be Paris agreement aligned so the investment on renewable energy and energy efficiency will go up to 13 trillion dollars in the next 20 years then where the financing is coming from certainly the public resource is very scarce right then there's huge money available from the private sector then the critical issue is where do you have the enabling environment to mobilize those critical funds both domestically and also internationally then international financial organization like world bank we see play a critical role also on helping government to create the enabling environment then investment in de-risking and also mobilize the targeted private sector investment our estimation also shows that among this 9 trillion to 13 trillion dollars between NDC or more aggressive climate change action by different countries, at least a two-third of the money has to come from the private sector.
0: Yeah, on that, so World Bank is of course playing a crucial role here, but how can more organizations support the World Bank's energy projects, either financially or through provision of technical or educational assistance?
1: Yeah, so this is an important part, not only World Bank, but together with a multilateral international financial institution, like a regional bank, like ADB, and also the European donors, right? We are working towards a collaborative approach, advising government on key policies and the reform needed to create the enabling environment in each of the individual countries, particularly those six countries where the World Bank is focusing on, because that's where the greenhouse gas is coming from, right? Uh, without a success in those six countries, we won't win the battle against climate change. So World Bank together with other international financial institutions and development partners, including bilateral partners, are working on a coordinated approach, advising government on policy and the institution reforms to enable renewable energy, energy efficiency and energy transition and phasing out coal.
0: In this series, we talked about the need for strong policy intervention to drive the energy transition forward. In your opinion, what should this look like and how might it differ in the low-income regions the World Bank typically supports?
1: Yeah, I think for, from policy side, right, you need to really sit in the seat of the policy decision-makers' seats, right? You need to look from their perspective. So for each country, their priority is energy security, right? And then second is cost and competitiveness of their economy. And the third is international commitment, like NDC, right? So how the policy will be derived on energy transition, I think is driven by these three factors. As a policy makers, right, you need to think about how to drive the energy transition, but make sure that there is a sufficient supply of energy. So that will be translated into government policies, what technology, right? What kind of project should be invested in? So we call the system planning. So that will be translated into planning side on what investment and what project need to come in line over the next five, 10, 20 years, right? To ensure energy security at the same time you know you drive at least cost of energy supply to meet the economic growth demand at the same time meet your international commitment on greenhouse gas emission reduction so those parties are linked to those three underlying objectives right the government is looking for but when it comes to low-income countries right it's slightly different they are not a major emitter of the climate change right so those countries are basically are very vulnerable to climate change so from policy perspective, then I have to focus on more on resilience, right? When we talk with low income country and smaller country where the emission is less than perhaps 1% or 0.1%, then how this country can be adaptive to the climate change and to be prepared for the vulnerability, right, of their economy and the infrastructure to climate change. So these are the key area for policy, mainly on adaptation side and rather than mitigation side, that's how I see.
0: So now I'm really curious to learn more about the time you spent on the Three Gorges Dam. And as I understand, that's the world's largest power station in terms of installed capacity since 2012. Could you tell us a bit more about the work on this project and the impact that has in terms of power generation in China? And should this project somehow serve as a role model for deployment of hydropower generation also in other countries?
1: Yeah, from my side, this is really a good role model from both Chinese perspective as well as international perspective, right? So I started working after graduation from college in 1985. Then I started my career at the three colleges, starting from a technician, eventually to the assistant, to the president. And also as assistant to the deputy to the prime minister in the state council for managing this project, so I went through the entire process, of knowing about the preparation, implementation, decision making. Three words for me, yeah, it is one of the largest projects. For first stage, it have eighteen thousand two hundred megawatt generation capacity installed, and later on expanded to twenty two thousand gigawatt. So that's one project, right? I remember when we do the justification at the Fisbee study stage, right? The power generation would be equal to at that time, right, one ninth of the total power generation in China, one project. And it will replace six thousand ton of standard coal of energy, right, every year. So based on the annual production. So from both international perspective as well as from country energy security cost perspective, right? It brings cheap and the reliable electricity to sustain a huge and fast-growing economy. But on the other side, it replaced the fossil fuel coal, right? Because the alternative is coal power and reduce reduced greenhouse gas emission reductions, replacing 6,000 tons of coal consumption per year. On the other side, it took really, even from the World Bank perspective, when I look back about the three quarters, right, take more or less like an international standard impact assessment on the environment social side, and also there is a huge cost invested in mitigate the social and the environment impacts. The cost of the environment social side is almost equal to the cost investment on the infrastructure itself. That's how I see the project right now that I'm really proud of will be part of the program and again, the huge experience from 3 Gorges cycle power.
0: So in DNV's energy transition outlook, we forecast that the share of hydropower in the electricity mix is slightly going back from 16% by 2020 to about 13% by 2050. But that's actually only because all the other renewables are growing so strong. But do you see that hydropower could actually play a larger role if we would have more of these projects like, for example, Three Gorges?
1: I think hydropower needs to play a critical role but perhaps not a larger role, right? The reason why the shear is going down is also because of the fast growing of other renewable technologies like solar and wind. And solar and wind has its unique advantage it can be developed in relatively very quick time schedule. It can be distributed close to the load center, right? So it will, from the power system point of view, as long as you have the sufficient power system capacity and flexibility to cope with the variability or intermittence of those renewable energy, then it can play a very, you know, it can be a low-hanging fruit right, in resolving your energy demand or power demand. That's why the solar and wind is going so fast in those countries. Compare on large hydropower or hydropower, right? It has its unique advantage. It can provide both base load or peaking capacity for the power system. It can be developed in large scale, scale and provide a stable source of generation from the power from technical perspective, right? But it's huge and complex and particularly is environment and social impacts right you see internationally there are so many NGOs and uh, different communities uh, against the hydropower development right because you you will have a, a impacts on environment social side where you need a a full study and also a mitigation measures in place and also implementation process right you will also have huge challenges on how you bring the local community together with the development how you manage the benefit sharing with the local community so hydropower is a much more complex you know projects even it has a great advantage on clean energy on energy transition but the development side, you need a huge capacity and the financing and also engagement with the various stakeholders to make that happen. Compared with solar and wind, it's relatively simpler, can be put in place very quickly close to the load center.
0: So coming back to the World Bank, the World Bank is working for sustainable solutions that reduce poverty and build shared prosperity in developing countries. Could you give us some examples of the World Bank's energy programs and how they actually differ from region to region?
1: Uh, in, I work on two regions, perhaps we can compare these two regions. I work in South Asia region and the East Asia region for the World Bank, and slightly touch the Africa region. I think in East Asia region, right, there is a, you know, if you look at the energy program, our key focus is really on energy transition. I talk about the six countries in Asia country, right? Now, from World Bank side, it's East Asia country which is including China, Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Philippines. These are the four countries under my program, under my coverage. And they are consuming around 60% of the coal consumption in the world. So how to slow down the coal and then, at the same time, help the government to secure the energy supply and manage the cost of their electricity, as well as help them to achieve their NDC target and commitment, right, is a critical part of the World Bank Energy Program in East Asia. The second part is really steel access, right? There are more than 100 million people in in East Asia and still do not have access to electricity. So this is pretty much similar to Africa region. The key area where you are still talking about the access agenda is really Myanmar. Only maybe 50% of the population still do not have access to grid electricity. And also in Pacific Island country, if you look at all the 12 countries I'm looking care of, right, only around the 20% of the people have access to grid electricity. So the second major part, which is the same as other regions, is the access agenda. I think a third is really the innovation side, right? We see many of the technology, we talk about the disruptive technology which can help energy transition. Many of the technology in East Asia side is driven by Korea, Japan, and Chinese, right? Um, particularly for battery storage, hydrogen, um, carbon capture and the utilization. So from World Bank side, we are watching uh, how this country evolve on technology innovation that can benefit not only this region, but also the other region. So this may not be the same case like in Africa region, right? So these are the difference I see, the uh, different focus and given the different status of development and the role the region is playing from the global perspective.
0: So Jay, what are the World Bank's main objectives for its clean energy programs and what would success look like in your view?
1: Okay, so both objective and success, I would take a kind of maybe two-step of approach. First, you know, this World Bank operates at an international community, right? We are encouraging government, every country, to come up with a national determined commitment for climate change, combined with their own development agenda. So the first step is for World Bank is really help all the kind countries develop with renewable energy and energy efficiency to achieve their commitment of NDC target, at the same time their sector development objective, right? So this varies from country to country. The commitment are different, and also the sector development from their own perspective, right, are also different. That's the first step. So our success is really working with the government on five-year, 10-year planning on how to achieve those targets. Then measuring on a yearly basis and how the renewable energy energy efficiency is evolving with World Bank support, but of course in partnership with other development partners, right, from financing point of view. And the second step is really encourage government to go beyond this, right? So this is also depending on the political will of different government from their own perspective on how they want to play in the international community. So, so far we find that even, we do our detailed modeling and we find out, right, from the power sector perspective, if government try to achieve their NDC target, still, this would not allow this greenhouse gas emission reduction in the pace that is needed to be Paris Agreement aligned. So the World Bank has done a detailed analytical work on additional work need to be done to accelerate the decarbonization, going beyond even the NDC target that the government has. So these are the second steps of the of, uh, objective of World Bank uh, Energy Program. Is to continued policy dialogue, or work with the development partner and the government, right, to accelerate the decarbonization. But of course. That will be additional cost to the country, to the economy. Then on the other side, we're working with the development partner to mobilize concession financing to support governments to go next step of uh, decarbonization so that it achieves not only its own development objective but also contributing to the climate change mitigation.
0: So that detail you just mentioned about the World Bank having annual targets for the implementation, that reminds me very much of a discussion we had with Stitlef Engel, our CEO in DNV, for how we drive action. And he was so particular about that it's not enough to define targets for 2030 to 2050. We need to define tangible targets on a shorter term. So that's uh, very much in sync there. So what do you think needs to be achieved in order for all nations to turn their ambitions into actions order to achieve net zero
1: yeah i think then for to improve the ambition right it's need a combination of a medium long-term target versus annual action and target right if you have only one part then if you only have annual target then you won't have the big picture you don't know how about five, five years 10 years 20 years later where you are going to but if you do not have a long-term target then your annual target will justification of the annual target will also be a question right so we work on both then, in what on the ambition side is what I just talked about, right? In our cont- we do continuously analytical work on what is needed for each country to play their role to collectively contributing to achieving the Paris Agreement target. Then. That is converted into our daily policy dialogue with the key decision makers in the country. What should be the policy and target and the planning down the road for the long term as well as annual target? Then, of course, government, I see, increase the political will on advancing decarbonization, both for the benefit of the country as well as for the climate change from the different governments we are dealing with. But the challenge for them is really the incremental cost, right? Which may go beyond their capacity. So you can see some of the country has a conditional commitment to NDC, which is much more aggressive without international support, right? Then if you have international support, they have much more aggressive target than without international support. So from World Bank side, is on one side raising the ambitions together with the government, but on the other side, mobilize support to another government being able to achieve those increased ambition on climate change.
0: Jay, how about the alignment of commitments of the countries towards 1.5 degrees? How optimistic are you there?
1: Yeah, maybe many from based on World Bank analytical work, right? Based on also the announced uh, national determined commitment from different countries, we see there's still a gap towards a 1.5 degree target of the Paris Agreement. Country would need to step up their decarbonization process, raise their ambition in order to be aligned with the 1.5 degree. So for this gap, this is also part of the key operations of the World Bank, you know, energy program in this region. We are working with the government on revised the targets on uh, how to be aligned with the 1.5 degree. And we also see there is a strong political will from the government trying to achieve not only the national development objective, but also climate change target to be the agreement aligned. But the, the challenge for the country is really the incremental cost, right? In order to step up the decarbonization, as I mentioned earlier, the investment in the power sector per se would go from 9 trillion dollar to 13 trillion dollar to meet versus meeting NDC target uh, and then 1.5 degree a night. So there is a $4 trillion dollar just on the investment side. This will result in the cost of electricity increase between 10 to 10% among the key East Asia uh, economies, right? Like India and China, Vietnam and Philippines, Indonesia. So, how do you manage the incremental cost? Is the challenge faced by the policymakers. Then, the World Bank say the future would be a close collaboration between international community as well as country government, right? On one side, they risk the ambition, but on the other side, provide additional support, particularly concessional finance, to help the government to mitigate you know, macroeconomic as well as social impacts, right? Because of the increased cost of decarbonization, at the same time, help them to achieve what they have committed and even raise the risk ambition.
0: Thank you very much, Jay, for this really interesting overview of this important work the World Bank is doing on on the regional differences. It was a real pleasure having you with us today.
1: Okay, my pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Jay's fascinating explanation of how the World Bank supports renewable energy projects all over the world shows just how far some countries have come on their path towards net zero. He also explained how finance and policy can be used to support developing countries as they move away from fossil fuels toward a greener future powered by renewables. Jay reminded us that despite some excellent progress, the world is still on course to miss the targets set by the Paris Agreement, and that holistic, coordinated action is needed now if we are to reverse this trend. Join us next time for a discussion about how one of the world's biggest companies is approaching the fight against climate change via technology. To hear more podcasts from DNV, please visit dnv.com/slash talksenergy.